Hey everyone, Tim K here. Sorry about the delay uh, between podcasts, but it really couldn't be avoided. I'm on the road, uh, was on the road with our President Blake for a while in the western half of America, visiting our fantastic friends out at Heroes and Horses out in Montana. Uh, what an incredible time with Lisa Bouchard, Micah Fink, Chris Belva, Jesse. Uh, just an incredible time. We had a really amazing uh, experience out there as always. So anyways, I've been out in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. I'm currently staring at the Sawtooth. I know, feel bad for me. Pray for me, please. It's rough out here on dim streets. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about our friend, this farm wife. Meredith, a.k.a. this farm wife, is as her title describes her, the wife of a farmer out in Milton, North Carolina. Now, Blake and I had the great privilege of spending some time around her whole family a couple months ago or so. I think it was a couple months. I don't even know. It could have been three weeks, guys. At this point, I don't really remember. It could have been six months. Uh, <laughs> these trips are starting to run together, and my brain has melted. But anyways, she's as fine a patriot as there comes. Through her brand, really, actually, I should say lifestyle, because it entails everything she's about. She gives viewers a look into the daily life of our hardworking American farmers. And she has a merch shop, which is why I'm bringing this up in the first place. We have a brand new collaboration with her. We partnered on some merch, specifically a Freedom Is Not Free t-shirt. The design is sick. Our President Blake did it. And it's now available through the This Farm Wife storefront. We will provide a link in the description of the podcast. All proceeds from the shirt go to the project. Guys, I'm really stoked about this. Just absolutely incredible work by Blake. Uh, thank you to Meredith for doing this in the first place. So much support for the project, and we really appreciate her. Love her. She is an incredible human being. We just started selling these t-shirts over the last month, and folks, they are going fast. To those who've already bought a shirt, we greatly appreciate your support. For more information, check out the link in our description or visit thisfarmwifeshop.com. Transition and rediscovery of one's purpose are two topics continuously discussed in the veterans community. These aren't just veteran issues, though. All humans at some point in life will undergo a season in life where transition comes into play and purpose may be lost in this place of rediscovery. As a community that understands these matters better than almost any other, it makes perfect sense that there are those in the veteran space that would step up and create a path of purpose for those struggling to find it again. Mike Irwin is still serving, and his life is a consistent template of that service. Names are signed on dotted lines, knowing full well the ink from that pen may become the blood spilled on battlefields thousands of miles away. When Irwin signed his name, that signature was not just bound in service to our armed forces, but our nation as a whole. You see, patriotism is not just some byproduct of having served in a combat zone. Patriotism is also about those who serve on the home front, and Mike embodies both sides of that coin. He served honorably in both Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he serves now through various initiatives on the home front. Irwin's nonprofit, Team RWB, which I'm sure most of you know about, stands as an example of what is right in the world, offering communal healing to those who are struggling to find their purpose again. Their mission is to be the cure to the isolation and health challenges our nation's veterans face on a day-to-day -day basis. 
by forging America's leading health and wellness community for veterans, service members, and their families, Team RWB strives to recreate a sense of purpose. Their chapters, all 212 of them, and the Team RWB app deliver virtual and local, consistent, and all-inclusive opportunities for veterans in the community to connect through physical and social activity. Volunteers host regular fitness musters, social gatherings, and community service events while building strong local connections with members and organizations within the community. Irwin has effectively created a construct where service continues past one's time in the military, and through that model, he offers veterans a chance to continue that service to a nation that needs their example. Awareness is spoken of almost ad nauseum in a culture that needs triage. Mike's efforts have created real, lasting, actionable processes that are saving lives. Guys, I'm not just talking about this or reading from some script. I've seen it in person. I photographed for We Are the Mighty uh, Team RW event where they were running all the way across the country and carrying the flag with them, the old glory run. Seattle to Tampa Bay. We started in Seattle. I photographed that. I photographed the end of it in Tampa Bay. I was blown away by the joy the camaraderie, the connection that these events bring. So believe me when I say, I'm not just saying this to say it, I really was a part of this, and I viewed the connection from the outside looking in, and it was powerful. But I've already said enough, as usual. Here he is with an education on service through leadership, the one and only Mike Irwin. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host as always. We're here in beautiful North Carolina with Mike Irwin, who is the founder and back again, executive director of Team RWB. Uh, Mike, so great to have you here, man. Appreciate you coming on. Yes, yeah, it's awesome, Tim. Fired yeah. up to get into the conversation today. And while it is a little bit rainy, uh, it is a beautiful part of the country. Yes, yes, it is. It's good. You know, as I was driving out here, I was like... Uh, kind of blown away. I'm always blown away by the pines and just mm-hmm. the, the, the austere beauty of this part of the country. Yeah, it's awesome. But you've got a you've got a farm now. Yes. <laughs> and, and pigs and chickens and do you have cattle? So we don't have cattle yet. Oh. We have we got goats and then ducks and two Great Pyrenees dogs wow. and uh, and sometimes the year we've got meat chickens and turkeys that we raise as well. So. Cattle, and then eventually, hopefully, a dairy cow in the future. But that's a little bit ways off. Okay. So. <laughs> but you're but you're on your way. You're yes. well on your way. <laughs> Absolutely. I uh, I'm a bit like I think a lot of people this way, kind of like a light switch. You know, like either on or off. And when we made the move out here less than a couple of years ago, it very quickly became a hey, we're all in on this kind of lifestyle about learning how to grow food and mm-hmm. raise animals and do all those things that I for 40 years of my life had no appreciation for, no experience in, but mm-hmm. It has been so awesome learning and failing forward day after day out here. I like the failing forward idea. <laughs> You've had a lot of that with uh, Team RWB, right? Always. Like, yeah. Every, every organization you're part of, every, everything in life, right? Like you're, if you're growing, then you're constantly failing. Yeah. And the question becomes is, 
do you really see it as failure or do you see it as growth? And I'll never forget a great example uh, at West Point when I was up there. Jim Collins, one of my mentors, brought Tommy Caldwell, one of the best rock climbers in the world there, and he was trying to climb the Dawn Wall, this incredible route on El Capitan out in Yosemite. And it took him seven years to be able to accomplish it. And Jim asked him, like, well, how do you, how do you keep returning fall after fall when you fail? And without even missing a beat, he said, it's not failure, I'm growing. Mm. Right? And it's such a powerful, you know, this idea of growth mindset. Um, look, sometimes a failure is a failure, but most of the time failure is actually growth. And it's how you frame it that sets you up for approaching it in a positive way or a pessimistic way. Yeah, that's powerful. I, uh, I, I think of what you're doing because my idea of Team RWB was first founded upon uh, We Are the Mighty, mm-hmm. uh, was covering the old glory run, uh, and it was starting off in, in Washington. Yep. We were going from Seattle uh, or, or joint base in that area, and then we were moving towards Tampa. So I photographed the beginning stages, and then I flew out to Tampa near the end and photographed. I was just... It was remarkable, the branding, the strategy, everything that you were doing, but the meaning behind the movement, right? And it is a movement. Team RWB is that. It, where was this kind of founded upon? Because you talk about falling forward, you know, failing forward, and the idea of that. I mean, it takes a lot to start a nonprofit. Trust me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing it with the Caregiver Project, and I think it's a little crazy. But uh, where did this idea kind of come from? Absolutely. So, you know, real quick backstory is, you know, graduated from West Point in 2002, so 9-11, coming up on the 20th anniversary this year. Um, crazy to think it was that long ago. But that took place at the start of my senior year. And then I went intelligence into the Army and did 13 years on active duty. And the first eight years of those were uh, 3rd Special Forces Group, 1st Cavalry Division, so Texas, North Carolina, Iraq, Afghanistan. And, and then after all those you know uh, rotations and all that time spent either preparing to deploy or deploying, I then went to grad school. And I went to the University of Michigan. I studied positive psychology. And one of the things that you learn in the field of positive psychology is that our relationships in life are so critical to our health and to our happiness and our well-being. And, you know, it's hard, though. Relationships are hard. Family, friends, romantic relationships, teammates, coworkers, wherever you turn, like, relationships are complex. And so in Team RDB, the initial idea really was let's use the power of physical activity to raise awareness for and to raise funds for an organization, a nonprofit, that helps veterans to connect with one another, right? That helps them to forge those relationships in their community with other people, be those people veterans or not. And that was the idea of the organization for the first couple of years. But what happened is, like any organization, you evolve, right? Because you listen to the market, you listen to people. And a lot of people kept coming forward and saying like, wow, I see you guys out there at races. I see you at triathlons. I see you working out and doing CrossFit workouts. And physical activity was huge to saving me. It was huge to my life. And we just started to hear from more and more veterans about how important physical activity was. And so we evolved our focus. You know, we did not focus just on supporting wounded veterans. We wanted to support all veterans, regardless of whether you've been wounded or not, your disability or not. Like we wanted all veterans to feel like you can be a part of team red, white, and blue, and we can help you to live a healthier and better life. And so that's that example of, of failing and falling forward, right? Like you have one model, you think you've got it figured out, but then you realize that no, for us to keep growing and having a bigger impact, we need to change. We need to make some evolutions. And so, you know, that was 2012. And really for the you know next seven years or so, as I stepped back, I was you know on the board of directors and all that, but was not nearly as involved as I was in those early days. 
you know, we started building out this organization, the, the messy middle, so to speak, of how do you build an organization that's going to be here for decades, for centuries? Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Yeah. So again, like we kept doing that. Um, and, and now where we're at today is I returned to the executive director role in November of 2019 is really what I kind of call RDB 3.0. And that is an evolution of our focus being on not just helping veterans to connect to their community, but really helping them to be healthier physically, mm-hmm. mentally, and emotionally. And so we're explicitly telling the world that's who we are. That's what we do. We are focused on the 17 to 18 million members of the veteran community and helping them to be healthier from a physical, mental, and emotional standpoint. Mm. But this this came from a, this came from a place, didn't it? In your youth, it had to have like this drive. Because when I'm around you, I I feel like I'm you know either doing drugs or drinking a lot of coffee. You know, <laughs> like you're you, the way that you are, and you're always moving. You're always headed towards something. And you know, I'm sure you need your slow down times too mm-hmm. for for this work. You know, where did it really come from as, as a youth growing up? Because I know it had to have come from how you were raised. And, and Absolutely. Kind of well, I am drinking, as you can see on the video here, I am drinking uh, coffee right now in my <laughs> Team RDBB cup. But I do try to minimize the amount I drink. I, I do drink, you know, probably too much coffee. But uh, <laughs> but no, honestly, my, my part of my character profile is enthusiasm. And it's really funny because, like, one of the things I studied in positive psychology is just that we're all different. Mm-hmm. Yet we all have these different strengths. And the question becomes, can you see the good in other people? Because they're not going to be the same as you. Yeah. And so my natural strengths are enthusiasm, optimism, perseverance, and gratitude. Those are strengths that come very naturally to me. So enthusiasm, a lot of that is that I'm passionate about what I do and the work that I am involved in. And you know, I think a lot of it stems from my childhood. I was the oldest of four. And so, wow. um, you know, pressure to lead from my parents, right, for my, you know, for my younger siblings. But, you know, beyond that, like just had a great example of service in my family. My dad was a police officer. My mom was actually the first woman police officer on the Syracuse Police Department wow. back in 1974. That's cool. So the first eight months of my life were spent in her belly walking the streets of Syracuse on patrols. Wow. Um, you know, and so, you know, the service aspect certainly came, you know, from my folks. Um, and then in terms of the character profile and just the desire to build an organization. And as you know, right, like you got to be thick skinned. You got to be able to just shrug off failure because no matter how smart or how talented or how much money you're, you have in your funding, none of that really matters if you don't have the composition psychologically as an entrepreneur to take a licking and keep on ticking and just keep <laughs> moving forward, right? So, yeah. um, so I do think a lot of that probably has to do with a combination of things from my background, but also just my, um, you know, my genetic makeup, right? People are different and my, my siblings don't have the, the same sort of, you know, uh, high energy level that I do. I think that they also think I'm a little crazy, but, um, but it definitely is, you know, it, 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 uh, it stems from a place the organization does and the desire to serve, you know, from my family and, and from growing up. And, and it's like so many of us who've worn the uniform, right? Like that's just a, a an incredibly important part of our makeup and our composition. And, and I think that you're making a very important point about perseverance, right? Because the, the, the foundational aspects of who we are as soldiers, uh, you know, in serving the United States military, perseverance is tantamount, tantamount to everything we do. 
I mean, it's just a, a large aspect of every part of our life. And, and, and that's really being successful outside of that, too, is one of those intangibles you can take mm-hmm. from your time in service is taking that perseverance and carrying that on, right? Because yep. we talk about these aspects of, well, infantrymen don't necessarily have tangible skill sets outside because, right. you know, what does a guy require to fire at 300 meters, you know, and kill a moving target? Like, what's that going to translate right. to outside? But it's really the aspects of perseverance, confidence, determination, honor, courage. Care- Character, all that right. character. So perseverance for you, you know, I tell people all the time, they ask me, how, how do I choose my veterans? I said, well, it's really easy because at first it was just who would do it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, who would say yes to this crazy guy that wanted to follow them with a camera? You know, yep. <laughs> you want to do what? <laughs> you know, and the humility is, is great. But it was one of the first roadblocks to doing this work, really, was a lot of guys were just so humble that they didn't even want to tell their story. Oh, my story's not like World War II veterans or... Right. Whatever. Well, of course it's not, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's powerful in its own way and perseverance, reintegration, transition, all that you did while you were in and yep. before that. What what about perseverance? Because you've you've had your failures, of course, we all have. Yep. W- what keeps you moving in direction when you take those licks? Yeah, yeah. I think that, and again, there's little failures like little F and then big F, right? Big failures. You know, where you're like, oh boy, like got that one way wrong and. Um, I think part of it is, again, I do, I do believe there's like a genetic role. Like we all have certain characteristics that we're naturally more inclined to be like or not like. Um, but I think a big part of it, you know, for me is, you know, the desire, especially in the organizations I'm a part of to make an impact. And that is something that like, you can't make an impact. You can't build an organization. You can't be successful in anything you do. Like, as a father, as, you know, a volunteer, as a leader, you know, as a farmer without, you know, without making mistakes and, and then realizing that if I'm going to learn from this and grow and get better, then like I have to stick with it. And, you know, I just kind of use the example of here moving out to the farm. I mean, so we've been out here in uh, the past 18 months or so. Oh my goodness. I mean, we lost all 400 fish. Our entire four acre pond was wow. uh, duckweed blanketed it and, and it's basically starved the fish of oxygen. They all died on July 4th. Wow. <laughs> um, like I was out mowing <laughs> the lawn, like we just moved out here and I'm like, what is that smell? Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness. And you know, we had a hornet's nest that was like basically attacking us anywhere. Uh, anytime we got near that. That was not the smell of freedom, by the way. <laughs> no. It was a bad smell. No, that was the opposite yeah. of yeah. that. Yeah. You know, in August we had that great coyote ambush where coyotes came out and got, we only had nine chickens at the time. And only five of them were laying eggs, and it got four, and all four of them were ones that were laying eggs. Like, you could feel, like, the failure going on. And then the garden that we tried to grow, right, it ended up, we picked the wrong location, and hardly anything grew. And the list goes on and on about all the mistakes you make. And um, you can either pack it in, or you can say, all right, I'm going to keep learning from it. It doesn't mean that it's easy mm-hmm. to feel that setback or feel that mistake, but, you know, if you have the right perspective, then you realize like this is part of life right. and this is important that not just for myself, but I show my kids this, that we're going to keep moving forward, right? And we're going to go, we're going to restock the pond and we're going to kill that hornet's nest and we're going to get smarter so coyotes can't come up and sneak down the dry creek bed and ambush my chickens, you know? <laughs> yeah. So like all those kinds of things that gave you a sense of determination, right? And so, you know, I think that's a huge thing that people talk about all the time, right? You know, Tom Brady, you know, just classic, right? Of like, he's kind of a winner. You know, I mean, like, you know, like last guy picked in the job. I mean, it's such a a classic example that maybe we overtell the story, but like there's so many people out there that are overlooked or they see that and they use that doubt or that the mistakes they make. And instead of 
getting frustrated that it's like logs that you throw on and fuel the fire, right? And it just makes the fire burn hotter. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to use this as fuel to make me take that anger or frustration and pour it into something positive. And, and again, I think that's just uh, a thing that a lot of us who've served, we've got that, you know, both makeup and training in our lives. Yeah. So, so moving off of that point, wh- what within Team RWB, what have you been the the happiest with and what you've seen in, in the movement of your nonprofit? And this this is an idea, right? This this isn't a whole ideology. Yeah. It, it, what have you been happiest with in the movement of Team RWB? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting. A movement really is defined as like part of psychology, right? It's where you are seeing people are seeing themselves as a part of it. It's not just something you join or that you belong to, but it's something that is shaping the way you think and that you know that you're responsible for helping that movement to grow. And so a big part of Team RDB's focus on health and wellness and the focus on physical activity as a driver for that health and wellness, you know, that's something I've really seen, especially over this past year with COVID and, um, you know, the lack of in-person events that a lot of people, you know, have been attending it's been a killer. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, for a lot of people, it's been really, really hard. And while I certainly miss out on the in-person events, um, big time, I, I think that our organization is doing a good job of saying, like, until you feel people feel comfortable or until they go out there you know, and can get into more events, stay active, right? Move, walk, run, hike, ruck, burpee, you know, CrossFit, yoga, like whatever it is, like stay active because... That mindset is so crucial when you start to think about all the benefits of physical activity, right? There's the physical, obvious, but there's also the mental and the emotional health. Uh, there's a sense of confidence you get when you set a goal and you accomplish it. And so there's all these things that physical activity does for us. It's kind of a four for, it's not a two for one, it's a four for one, you know? And, and then it improves our mood. So it's a five for one. I mean, just the list goes on and on about all the benefits of it. And so, you know, our organization is really trying to continue pushing that message, and especially for veterans, right? When you were on active duty guard reserves, you had to be active, right? It was a requirement of the job, not just from a certain BMI level, right? But you had to be able to pass physical fitness tests. And often you did that through consistent physical activity. And we drew the benefits of that when we were in the military on active duty guard reserves, but especially if those who were on active duty. And so like it's helping veterans to remember the power of physical activity that it had in their lives yeah. when they were there. And it's like, so that's one of the phrases that I'm kind of using is like, how do we build this movement for veterans to rediscover the power of PT? Mm-hmm. Because it's got so many added benefits to a veteran's life. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the big things with me in this uh, mental health space, because obviously, you know, we've wanted to provide action more than just awareness mm-hmm. in the space of awareness of storytelling, right? I believe art is always at its strongest when it's creating action. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can get there, wonderful. Not everybody does. And that's not the point of all art. But if art creates action, that's a powerful thing. So for us, it's been about not just not talking about a divide necessarily between civilians and veterans, but more highlighting the similarities yeah. in trauma and reintegration. And people, everybody knows what it's like to transition. And obviously, with what you guys do in these Team RWB communities, it's not just veterans, right? Yep. I mean, you're having wives, husbands, brothers, sisters in 
what what is that method of inclusion look yeah. like? How do you make people feel welcome as a part of the movement? Because obviously there's some things that we're just different in, man, and we yeah. are always going to be that, right? And you can't and you can't hide that. But the human connection in that aspect is we're all humans. Totally. That's really the point of the Veterans Project is yep. to highlight us as humans. Totally. So so what does that look like for you um, in, in inclusiveness and providing that space for, for everyone? Absolutely. Um, you know, that idea of highlighting similarity. You know, mm-hmm. that's, I, call, I call that Dalai Lama 101. Like if you follow the Dalai Lama on Twitter, I mean, he's talking about that constantly reminding right, people that we all bleed red and we all need oxygen, right? Mm-hmm. We all need food and water. There's all these similarities between us, no matter where you live or the color of your skin or how tall you are or, you know, your background. Like, like we all, there's all some things that we all need. Mm-hmm. And it's important to not forget, despite all the differences, that there's a lot of similarities that we have. When we started the organization, a big part of our phrase, our motto in the early years was, it's our turn. Mm-hmm. It's our turn was, you know, kind of the rallying cry for civilians, non-veterans to be active and say, hey, it's our turn to support and to help you. You've raised your hand and you've went and deployed and, and helped defend, uh, defend freedom uh, on behalf of the nation to include me. And now it's my turn to, to lend a helping hand to you, right? And that was the initial idea behind that phrase and that concept. And so it was baked in from the very beginning. So Team RDB is 70% V-grad, veteran, guard, reserve, active duty, and 30% civilian, mm-hmm. right? Non-veteran, I don't know, whatever the right phrase or the right word is. Which is a pretty big percentage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. so yeah, we're almost, you know, one third, two thirds, pretty close to that. And so that's great because there's a lot of people mm-hmm. in our organization who have not worn the uniform, but they know people who have. And that's yeah. really, really important. And, you know, here we are on February 22nd, George Washington's birthday. And, you know, one of his famous quotes that he shared that was poured into the concrete of RWB in the early years was something along the lines of basically how likely it is that future members of a society will serve to fight and defend it is directly proportional to how they perceive veterans treated, right? Mm. Veterans from previous experiences and previous wars treated and appreciated by their country. Right. And so part of the idea is that you look at a situation like coming out of Vietnam, like where veterans clearly were like, we're not appreciated, we're not respected. Um, that had an effect on the types, you know, like about who was willing to go in and to go into the military in the 70s and into the 80s. It affected the entire psychology of a nation. Totally. Yeah. You know, and so there was, that's just like, I think, an important thing. And like a lot of great people step up to serve in the 70s and 80s, but there was a hard time recruiting you know, high caliber soldiers, you talk to people who are in the military, then there was lots of drug issues and lots of problems and struggles because, you know, a lot of people who might typically have gone on to serve in the military in the 70s and 80s had seen how the nation didn't treat well, didn't appreciate the sacrifice. Oh, by the way, these people who were drafted yeah. for the most part, you know, were treated. And so again, going back to Team RDB and why the role of integrating civilians into the organization is that it gives those who have not served in the military, a chance to express gratitude and appreciation in a tangible way to those who have. And that's really important, not just for the short term for those veterans, but also more strategically for the nation as people who are growing up see that appreciation and respect and make you know those young men and women more likely to join the military when they come of age. Mm, yeah. You know, so much about what you're speaking on right now is attached to leadership, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, and the leadership model you are a huge proponent of valuable leadership, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of invaluable, a lot of non-valuable yeah. leadership out there, uh, you know, which isn't real leadership right. 
for you and your ability in, in being an officer position, Lieutenant Colonel, who's uh, you know an assistant professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, w- what have you baked into the model of Team RWB? Because now you've got all these incredible stations across the country, right? San Antonio, Austin, uh, Seattle. I, I don't even know where all you are, just yep. spread across the country, you know? Yep. Um, how many different spots? 192. 192. Yep. So you're talking about leadership coming out of every position in those areas how do you control the, how do you, or do you yeah. uh, how do you control those models and make sure that the message and the mission is always the same totally so it's a balance of you know training right to make sure people understand the mission and the vision and the values we call those eagle ethos like who we are as an organization but it's also about inspiration you know and this kind of gets into leadership and management you need both of them and when I think about leadership, I really go back to General slash President Eisenhower's definition that it's the art of getting other people to do what needs to be done mm-hmm. because they want to do it. Yeah, and, like you know, I kind of just dissecting that, breaking down into four parts. Number one, it's an art, not a science. If you try to find an algorithm for leadership, good luck. <laughs> good luck. You'll be looking forever, right? Like I it, appreciate that it's an art, by the way. It is. It is <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is totally an art. And, right. And then it's about, you know, getting other people to do the work, right? So to be clear, like, yes, you can, yes, people expect their leaders to lead by example, but that's not leadership. That's like you doing the work, right? right? So if you're doing the law, the work alongside people, that's great. But very often leaders will say, you know what? Well, I can just do this job better than you. So I'll just go ahead and do it. Right. And they right? take it back and they take it back right. or they micromanage it. Right. But the idea is it's getting other people to do the work. So there's a training aspect. There's a, an inspiration aspect to get others to do the work, but then not just the work, the work that needs to be done because anybody can go out there and get people to go buy ice cream, right? Or anybody can go out there and say, hey, go watch, you know, uh, a movie for two hours. That's easy. I'm talking about doing the work that needs to be done, mm-hmm. right? And then lastly, because they want to do it. Yeah. If you make somebody do something, right, that's power. That's not leadership. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not saying that, that sometimes leaders don't need to exercise power and say, look, we need to go do that now. No time for debating. Let's go do it. But Ultimately, the gold standard, and Jim Collins talks about this, right? Leadership in its purest form exists when people follow and they don't have to, mm-hmm. right? So it's that whole idea of, well, how do you inspire people to want to put in the work? To Instead of spending 10 hours watching Netflix or watching football, right, that they're out there planning an event or executing an event for Team Red, White, and Blue. So part of it is inspiration. And so when you break down that definition into those four components, it's pretty powerful, that it gives you an idea of how complex it is, that it's an art and not a science, that it's about getting other people to do, not just anything, but the work that needs to be done, and not just because they feel like they have to do it, but because they want to. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right? So like that is a very complex and robust framework for thinking about leadership. And um, you know, we try to embed that into our organization as much as possible. But we've got a lot of people out there who are volunteer leaders who are already very busy doing so much stuff. And to see them lead and to mobilize and to motivate people, you know, is just incredible. And and they're the reason why 192 chapters are out there, you know, making a difference, you know, across the country. Uh, it's because of those volunteer leaders. Yeah, that's so massive. So, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of incredible things within the community, but getting to go outside of kind of the Team RWB um, you know, stratosphere and getting to teach some of these athletes and going to the space of, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers yeah. and, and what you've done at different colleges. 
what's been kind of your coolest some of your coolest experiences in that sphere and obviously i'm sure you don't get too awestruck anymore but it has to be kind of cool when you're speaking to pro athletes and, mm-hmm. and guys like that who are who who really you know these this kind of a message is invaluable to, to totally. their career and what they do yeah i'd say so a couple of things you know so one obviously in the past year there's been very minimal in-person leadership sessions but i've actually in uh, on saturday Got a session with uh, Apollo Ono, eight-time Olympic medalist, wow. you know, most decorated winter Olympian in U.S. history. I remember him very well, yeah. So so you're having a conversation, much like the one we're, ha- one we're having right now. It'll be by Zoom, him from California, me from, you know, I'll be in South Carolina at the time. But, um, you know, that's 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 pretty cool. Kerry Wallace Jennings, Tim and Elizabeth Hasselback. You know, there's a bunch of people that I've had the chance to really get to know well. He's actually about a, 10 minutes away from here, Clint Dempsey, the former captain oh, of, the, of yeah. the U.S. men's national soccer team. Uh, he's become a real good friend of mine. Great, great guy. Um, you know, so having conversations with people who perform at the pinnacle level of what they do is awesome. You know, yeah. we live right out here, right here on the doorsteps of Fort Bragg. I'm friends with some of the most elite uh, special operators in the world. You know, and so interacting with them and and seeing how they think and how they train and how serious they take and how much you know they they take their missions in life. I mean, is is deeply inspirational. Um, you know, one of the talks I gave, I, you know, one time I gave, you know, talked out of Miami to a bunch of NFL, you know, coordinators and assistant and position coaches, uh, about a year and a half ago now that was, that was pretty, uh, pretty great. Uh, Eric, awesome. Eric Bienemy, uh, the offensive coordinator yeah. for the Kansas city chiefs. And, but, um, with the thing that you've learned that I've learned through all my interactions with all these various people, whether they're the most elite military or sports athletes or musicians or whatever they've done. Um, and, and this is something that. I did not really grasp, certainly uh, initially, they're people just like you and me. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And honestly, like my, you know, my number one piece of advice, a lot of people are like, man, you got, you come to know a lot of like high profile people and all that. I, Cause I treat them like normal people, mm. right? Like, which is what they crave to be. You know, other people who don't know them, put them on this pedestal of being an Olympian or a pro athlete or, you know, the best, you know, one of the best operators in the world. And like, don't get me wrong, that's part of their identity. That's a big part of who they are, yeah. but. Uh, we as humans, I believe, crave to be known and appreciated more for our character and more for who we are than for what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that to me has been fundamental to how I interact with people. And regardless of how many followers you got or how much money you got or how successful you are, or how famous you are, if you're not a good dude or a good person, a good woman, like if you're not a good person got no interest in spending yeah, yeah. any and not, not one minute with you yeah. you know what i mean like i don't care how much you've done or how, right i mean it's it's really about the character and all those people i mentioned earlier are people who have come to deeply value and appreciate them for their character for how they treat me how they treat my family how they treat my friends veterans how they treat other people right uh how they treat the waiter right yeah. you know what i mean like anybody every interaction matters and if you treat people well and that reflects your character that's awesome. I want to be around people like that, regardless of what you've done in your life. Yeah. Uh, but it's especially cool when it's people who've done some things that I saw on TV 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So. That is pretty cool. And, and that's a good point. It, it's funny because within the work is some of these people that as a kid, you know, 
course, my parents were always like, don't ever idolize athletes, you know. But as a kid, you know, you invariably, you know, grow to idolize certain players mm-hmm. and what they do and all that. And now that I'm like in some of these circles, you know, and we've got a partner who's a lead singer in a big rock band. And my buddy's always like, dude, the way you interact with him is just so cool. Like, it's not like it's anything special um, or, or, or not special, but, you know, like you're not treating him like a god yeah. or a titan. And I'm like, you know, I have met the coolest human beings on this planet. And no discredit to that guy. Yeah. That is not those. Yeah. It's like, you know, some of the World War II veterans I've got. I get chills. I get yeah. nervous. I still shake when I'm putting up the pod podcast equipment you know mm-hmm. um and those guys strike me in such a hard way but the 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 meaning behind the work is why everybody to me is on an equal plane i'm here to attack the mission of the veterans project yep i'm not here to fanboy over anybody yep. you know yep. the work is the ultimate goal of what we're doing and so the instant i lose focus on that and i'm focused too much on one person or a singular human you know where i'm putting them on a certain pedestal i've lost the mission right right? it's right it's all important so you with team rwb you've got a goal yep so everything that you're doing is about incorporating elements of leadership and but also being able to give back through your experience in the army and you have a lot to give back as lieutenant colonel Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that now we're going to go back to the service we're doing this in reverse fashion this time that's Um, great how did you how did you get why did you decide to join the the army and, and what was the path to that yeah so you know i played baseball growing up as a kid so i was kind of like looking at you know, Kenny, can I play? Oh, yeah, baseball brothers. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, like, I was looking at, you know, is there a way for me, you know, to keep, maybe keep playing at the college level? But I knew that the purpose of college, was, you know, for me was going to be to be able to prepare me for life, right? Mm-hmm. And so, when I went down and visited West Point, it's not like I was, I was not one of these kids who said, oh, I want to become a soldier or want to go to a service academy from a young age. There are lots of those people who knew it. Right? Me too. I, I was not a guy who thought I'd ever serve, honestly. So, I get that. Totally. Yeah. You know, and so... For me, that was a big part of it, you know, was looking at, um, you know, can I continue to play baseball, right? But also, can I go to a place that's going to allow me to study and to grow and challenge me? And, um, you know, that's really what pushed me in that direction of, you know, you know, taking a look at West Point. But then I went and visited it. And as I tell people, I, I walked away from that first visit and seeing how unique it was and how challenging it was. And I knew that I, I, if I was going to, if I got in, I had to give it a try yeah. because I would not be able, I would look back, you know, that whole thing of like people look back more with regret, you know, uh, of what they didn't do than what they did. Uh, that would have been one of those things where I'm like, geez, I just never even gave it a chance. So I, I made that pledge to my family and myself. It's like, Hey, I'm going to go there for a year and I'm going to see how it is. Right. And if it's, if it's not at all for me or if I can't succeed there or whatever, then I'll move on. Mm-hmm. And that's when you go there and you start to fall in love with the tradition and the emphasis on service and the emphasis on character and how to grow into and become a leader. And even though like that first year is so hard and you're so tired all the time and all that stuff. Uh, by the way, I didn't discover, co- discover coffee until I was a lieutenant in the Army. Never drank any coffee. When While I, you were yeah. there? No. Like, <laughs> I wish I had. <laughs> yeah, you know? I know. But like, you know, you're kind of stumbling through like some of those weeks when you're a zombie because you're so tired. I don't so know how you tired, made it through. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and, but like, you know, it gives you this deep appreciation for you know, how important it is to really push yourself hard and to grow if you want to become you know, the best leader that you can, mm-hmm. if you want to become the best person you can be. And I knew that once I got there and, even, and once that became clear to me, it was like, well, I'm not, I can't walk away from this because I know right now this is what it means to be pushed, you know, to the very best, you know, of an organization's ability to push me. And so, 
know, that, that really was a big part of the foundation, you know, for my experience in the military with what brought me in there. And then what kept me there was that, and then of course the people, yeah. right? The people, as we all know, you know, you meet some of the greatest people in the world, you know, from the military and it puts you in hard situations together, shared suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a lack of sleep or it's cold out or you're hungry or you're, you know, doing a 12 mile road march, like whatever it is, you're doing hard things together. And the importance of that shared suffering in the military model is really huge. Mm-hmm. So all those things kind of come crashing together and, I think that honestly, most people, if they give the military a chance, would find it addicting and yeah. intoxicating, like so many of us have. And it doesn't mean that you love everything about it, right? But yeah. I am convinced that a lot of people, if they just gave themselves that chance to look beyond what they've seen in a movie and they get into the real experience, those common ground you know, of being pushed hard and building strong relationships and all that. Is, is a really powerful combination. You know, you know, Mike, I, I wish I had had, you know, my dad always had this saying that you, you will always go through something. There will, all be, there will be things that you go through no matter what. Yep. And it's all about your attitude and perspective and how quickly you get through it or how slow it goes, you know? And so his attitude, his idea about that really kind of spawned an interest in me and positive mentality and always treating a situation as a, as an opportunity to grow. But I did not do that well in the army. (laughs) When I was in the army, I I resisted almost everything about being a soldier. I I was good at it. I did fine. I did well on my tour in combat as a team leader and, and I, I did my best. I never felt like I really belonged. I don't think. Um, but when I got out, I realized that it was the best decision I'd ever made. And for me, that's like, I I wish I had recognized sooner when I was in, maybe I would have been promoted a little more quickly. Um, But you know, my, my idea of growth and all that happened through my time, I think one of the best things you can do as a person is do something outside of yourself or the idea of who you are. For me, I was not a soldier in my head. I was an artist. I was an athlete. Those are the things that I was. I wanted to just, you know, hippy-dippy, loosey-goosey life. (laughs) And uh, the military gave me real adaptable skills that created the structure for what I do now. Yeah. And it's absolutely incredible. I believe that God brought that into my life. But, you know, the the decision-making, how do you take that experience and joining and then propel that into your the the rest of your life. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. <laughs> that might be a vague one, but no, it's a, no, it's it's, it's very open ended. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the challenges around decision making. So I, I'm fascinated by the psychology of it all, right? Because like we make lots of decisions in a given day. Lots of them are really small. Some of them are medium size, and a couple of them are really big, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, what is your algorithm what is like your calculus that helps inform your decision making and some of them become big even though you think they're small that's right absolutely some small you know little hinges can swing some really big doors and when you think about you know the role of the military specifically in terms of helping you to to gain clarity and and make decisions like it said a lot of it is about having the discipline and the structure to set up a goal to, to knock down a target to follow through on it you know and that's a big part of anything you do in life, certainly leadership, but just anything in life is that ability, um, you know, to be able to get whatever it is done, you know, and, and when you talk to high schoolers, I mean, this concept applies beyond that, but it's called executive functioning. And, and that's something that a lot of kids today struggle with. Um, you know, executive functioning is like, do you have that capacity to know, okay, I need the backwards plan. I need to do this and do that. 
so that I can wake up by this time to get to the airport by this time, right? Like, and as adults, especially those that have served in the military, a lot of us have gotten really good at the executive functioning. Um, and that's something that I think we take for granted is how important that is to being successful in anything that you do. You need those skills. And I think a lot of people go through life not really getting the reps or the training on that, right? And mm-hmm. as you know, right, if you're not planning when to get up and when to shave so you can be at formation on time because you're going to get your butt chewed, <laughs> right? Like, like You're going to be hurting a yeah, lot. You're yeah, gonna, you're going to – I think the juice ain't worth the squeeze. So you're going to go, all right, I'm going to make sure I'm up by 445 so I can be shaved by this time so I can be out the door by 505 to get to formation by 510. Like, so like a lot of that stuff that the military, especially in basic you know, training – uh, teaches you like that hopefully does stick with you for the rest of your life because those skill sets are essential mm-hmm. to whatever it is that you do in life and especially being successful in founding an organization or creating you know a, a company or a nonprofit. I mean you you need to have those skills like in a big big way yeah being on time is one of the easiest ways to impress and it's one of the easiest ways totally. to get to give a bad idea of who you are too you yep. know so just those even just something as simple as that mm-hmm. you know i i was going to be late on my way over here so i'm messaging you right away yeah. to let you know i'm going to be 10 minutes late those are just little steps you can take do i have to send that message right. probably not right but we know each other well enough to you kind of know my character but at the yep. same time i've got to do that for yep. me because i know that that directly out, out you know it affects the way that the Veterans Project gets looked at. Totally. And the work. And yep. small experiences lead up to big big ideas of who a person's character is. Yeah, that's right. So going back, though, we're, you're at West Point. You you spend four years, four years, right? Or five? Yep, four years. Yep. Four years. You survived without coffee. I don't know how you did that. Yep. Um, <laughs> you play baseball. Yep. How hard was it with the athletic career and also being at West Point? Because I have a I have a friend who was on the tennis team there, and and we talked about it a little bit, and you know, kind of was telling me that she was always fatigued no matter what. Mm-hmm. How tough was it to do to balance both? Yeah, very very challenging. I mean, you take on average nineteen to twenty one credit hours academically, Jeez. you know, and so per semester, so you're already kind of stacked up on that, and then you got the military, right, keeping your room clean and your uniform and your haircut and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, yeah, there, there's a lot going on. There's not a whole lot of downtime. And so when you play a sport, Division One sport especially, you know, you're committing a fair amount of time, you know, to that. And so, you know, that, that amplifies the level of challenge and amplifies the challenges around sleep, you know. <laughs> um, and so that was always the big thing for me was, you know, that, like, geez, by the time I get back from practice and I eat and all that, like, you know, I, I was not able to get the, the adequate rest that I needed. And I, I tell cadets all the time because I, you know, I teach there every summer. I teach football players now. And I say, look, if there was one change I would make, I'd go back and tell myself as a cadet, it would be find a way to get to bed earlier. Yeah. Right? Because it will improve your mood, but also improves your memory and how much attention you can pay in class. Mm-hmm. And I was often that cadet who was standing up in class, right? Because it was not accepted to be falling asleep in class. Oh, yeah. You know? And so standing up and like just working so hard to stay awake and stay present. And when you're focusing so much your energy on that, then you're not able to pay attention to the content mm-hmm. nearly as effectively, right? So that's one of the things I think that's so important for all of us now, whatever chapter of life we're in, is how do we get an adequate, like what is the right amount of sleep, mm-hmm. you know? And uh you know, whoop and other kinds of devices help us think through it. And there's a general ballpark on what they would tell you is a good amount of sleep. And it's north of eight hours a night. I don't think that we all have the same requirement for right. sleep, right? Yeah. There are some people that don't need as much and others that need more. 
but I do think that you've got to find your sweet spot. So for me, it's six hours, mm-hmm. right? So usually when I go to bed at 11.45, you know, 12 o'clock is my time when I go to bed and you know, I'm up at 5.45 or 6. Like that's like a good, like perfect amount for me. Yeah. And other people are like, oh, I just can't do that. Like I, I need more sleep than that. And like that's totally fine, but like you got to know that about yourself. Yeah. You know, and, and I did not really know that about myself back then. And it, and it made it so that I was just, you know, less motivated and less <laughs> engaged, you know, in whatever I was doing that, than I should have been. I, I'm glad you point that out, but I would like to find a West Point cadet that said they got enough sleep yeah. <laughs> ever yeah. in their career, even if they True. knew that they had to get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's it's kind of part of the thing, right? Totally. Dragging, you, dragging it out and, you know, making just just totally destroying your 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 will to live <laughs> yeah totally it is yeah the push it, is the push is real i mean on terms of like on your motivation the model works yeah. though it certainly does and especially yeah. at a place like west point what w- when you got through your time at west point and did you know you enjoyed being on the baseball team you enjoyed playing i did yeah, yeah. left-handed pitcher left-handed pitcher yeah, yeah. we need those yes. for sure yeah. through, through absolute meatballs 70 <laughs> 78 miles an hour you know and I uh, had a curveball and a changeup, but I was a reliever and I would come in sometimes when the game was really close or sometimes when we were getting hammered mm-hmm. or sometimes when we were blowing someone out. Right. So I was. Were you kinda, a long reliever? I, I was. Okay. You know, I, and so I was not like, there was definitely not a closer. Right. But I was someone who would come in at various points within, you know, a game. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I did. I enjoyed baseball and just the art of throwing and mm-hmm. getting on there and being the pitcher and having like stress, you know, on your plate, it was it was fun. There's something about the camaraderie model in that too. Um, being on a team, you know, mm-hmm. I noticed that when I came back from. So when I, I came back from Iraq, I finished my baseball career in college, and my final two years I spent as a closer. Yeah. And the the ability, I I can tell you before I went to Iraq, I could not have been a closer. Yep. But when I got back, that crunch time situation, and, and it still was tough. Like people mm-hmm. would be like. Oh, you've been to Iraq, so this is like nothing, right? Last inning, I'm like, dude, no, I, yeah. it is still crunch time in my head, and I yeah. am still on the edge of my pants, you yep. know, it, the edge of the cliff every time, you know. Yep. So, so for me, it's still tough, but being able to process things very quickly, yep, and to think through a situation in a matter of seconds, where a ball and a strike can make the difference in an entire game, right, is like that concentration is so imperative, but the camaraderie aspect of being on a team and being a part of something bigger, which is what Team RWB is doing yep. now, that, that that's huge in a, in a D1 sport, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just the uh, the amount of time, the sheer volume of time you spend with people, right? And then especially if you're traveling and all that, but then when you have each other's backs and how do you treat each other when someone boots the ball or makes an error or someone strikes out? Yeah, I mean, all those kinds, of, it's a bit of a microcosm, right, for, for life. And I, I, one of my favorite quotes that I share all the time is that life's a team sport. You know, and so the faster you realize that, the faster you appreciate that, the better for you, right? So if you could just kind of go into the positivity project and talk a lot about that, because I know we, we had a lot of discussions about that last time. You did. Um, you were very involved. Absolutely. Now, obviously, stepping in the executive director role again with Team RWB, probably your role has gotten a little bit more partitioned. Yep. But but what what are you doing with that right now? Absolutely. So, yes. Yeah, so, co-founder of, with a fellow veteran, Jeff Bryan, uh, the Positivity Project. So, 672 schools right now across the country in, in 26 different states. Our mission is to empower America's youth 
to build positive relationships and become their best selves, right? So there's a focus on helping them to build better relationships and connect, but also to become the best version of themselves through the 24 character strengths that sit at the foundation of positive psychology. So uh, I'm the chairman of the board right now um, and still also involved, I'd say about, you know, probably seven, eight hours a week I spend. Uh, I'm, for example, I'm giving a talk tomorrow uh, to Fresno, California, to a bunch of teachers out there. Uh, so do some work still centered around training because that's a lot of what I did there for five years in the P2 was to help lead it, but also to lead some of the trainings as well. Uh, super important in times of COVID and even as we emerge out of COVID, social emotional learning, character development. If you don't believe that it's important to learn how to deal with adversity and to learn how to connect with people, right, coming out of this, then I got nothing for you, <laughs> right? Like uh, kids especially need the help and the guidance on connecting with others and when you think about how hard that is as adults right it should hopefully be increasingly apparent to people that this is an important skill that we teach children at a younger age how to build relationships with other people because number one it's really hard to do number two it's the number one driver of life satisfaction right so that's where we come at this from and we're partnering with schools right now and continuing to grow and probably build out the vision to empower um you know, parents at home or homeschools or, you know, individuals who want to bring this approach and this training and teaching to their children. But right now we're primarily partnering with schools and continued to grow, which has been incredible. That's awesome. What Do you think being in that role with the Positivity Project has increased your abilities with Team RWB and what you're doing now? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've got this view, Tim, right? That's like that the world is an ecosystem, right? That relationships are an ecosystem and what you do in one pocket is not siloed. Rarely is that the case. And so when I think about the positivity product and all that I've learned over there about, yes, organization building from a different angle, but the importance of positive psychology, of connecting with other people, all that has had a direct impact on my life personally, with my family, with my friends, but it's also had a big impact on my ability to lead in, in other corners of my life. And the positivity products had a huge impact, much like if you talk to most teachers <laughs> and principals and people who are involved in it, they'll tell you the same thing, right? That it's had a big impact on them beyond just their role as an educator. Mm, absolutely. I, you know, I think it's so important uh, what you're doing because there is so much um, negativity in school, especially in those, in those years, you yeah. know, well, those formative years, right? It's hard. Psychologically, uh, you know, with bullying and with, you know, the way kids just treat each other kind of naturally, you know, mm -hmm. in their growth process and all that. I've met many a bully from young age. It's now an incredible person, you know, yep. but, um, it's those formative years are very tough for kids. Totally. So I'm sure seeing your own kids and their growth and watching them has helped kind of puts you in a place where you understand that even better, right? No doubt. Yeah, this gets, I mean, you make a really important point about the bullying thing, right? Uh, a lot of times it's just kids are trying to find their way. Why, right. do, why do people bully? Because they they're not secure in who they are. So they need to try to make other people feel insecure so that by comparison, they feel more secure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's a, it's a really flawed way of thinking, but that's that's how a lot of people... I had some guys in my unit that were like that. <laughs> totally. I mean, like, you know, it's something that goes on and sticks with, you know, some people for, you know, their entire lives. But, yeah. um, and so it's really about teaching children, you know, from a young age 
to be able to recognize and see the good, the character strengths in themselves so that they're more genuinely confident in who they are, regardless of what their test scores or their sports performance or all these other things that the world tells them is so important, right? If they're a good person, that's what matters a lot, right? Because if you're a good person, you're going to make it in life, yeah. right? You're going to build relationships. You're going to, people are going to want to be around you, those kinds of things. Like if you're not, you're on the other side of that coin, uh, that might be cool for a certain period of time in middle school or mm-hmm. into high school. Eventually, no one wants to be around you, yeah. right? And so teaching kids the importance of being a good person and also not just seeing the good in themselves, but seeing the good in other people, mm-hmm. right? Because again, it's very easy for us as human beings to see people's other people's flaws and shortcomings and problems. And we spent a whole lot of time earlier talking about negative self-talk, right? That's so often we do in our own heads. So we see a lot of flaws in ourselves. A lot of problems in ourselves, but we also do a really good job of seeing those same things in other people, projecting onto other people. And so that at the core is the is the model of change in the positivity product, which is like through a uh, consistent exposure to these 24 character strengths that sit mm-hmm. at the foundation of positive psychology. You give kids a deeper understanding and confidence in who they are. They also, the, you give them the language and the ability to better understand other people, especially other people who are different than them. And hopefully they can work to see the good in those people. So not only do you have a reduction in bullying and all that, but you also have an increased uh, capacity, a more fertile ground for people to build and to connect uh, and to build stronger relationships together, Mm -hmm. right? And if that's the case, if we can do that, we can literally, as we scale this across the country, because right now it's about, I think, 385, 390,000 students are, are engaged with this on a daily basis. We scale that to 10x, 20x. Right? We can literally change the future of the country because so many more people are going to have the capacity to build stronger relationships in their life. And and that's so, so important. That's powerful, man. Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about you saying was, and something often I hear in the community or just around by people is, from people, is just the, the thought that you got to kind of fix yourself before you fix, mm-hmm. before you help others, right? Yep. But I think it's even more so than that because... How can you help others if you're not in a good space, right? right? If you're not in a proper space of confidence, um, you know, self-reliance, the ability to empathize, right? You're not going to be able to really help anybody. So I think the creating those and constructing those foundations in what you're doing is huge because you're not only reducing bullying, you're, you're saying, hey, look, I know bullying is an issue. It's a problem. We're looking at this from a 30,000 foot view. Yep. And we've got, we want to fix the whole scope so we can focus on the positive. That's right. Right? Absolutely. And, and so going forward, what do you, what do you see this? Because you said 10x, 15, yeah. 20, whatever. I mean, you could take this a long ways. But what do you want that to look like for the future of the way these kids are being schooled? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, increasingly we're going to see more and more focus on SEL, social-emotional learning. Uh, you know, there's the, the question of what is the purpose of K through 12 education? There's been a big push for the past 20, 25 years to make it really about preparing kids for college, right? Um, and that's great. I think that's, that's, that's certainly, you know, for kids who are geared for college, um, that, that's a good thing. But the reality is there's a lot of kids out there that you know, don't want to go on beyond high school, right? They want to work in, whether it be the trades or as entrepreneurs, or there's all kinds of different ways. And I think it's really important that kids especially in middle school and high school, not think that, hey, if I choose not to go to college, that, that that's a bad thing, right? And so ultimately, a big part 
of the question right now that exists in education is like, what is the purpose of K through 12? And especially middle school and high school. And I think it's great that there's a still continued push on helping kids to get better at all the fundamentals, reading, writing, and history, right? But it's also really important. And I think people are increasingly aware that it's really important that we teach kids these character strengths, that we teach them how to be a good person, how to connect with and to build relationships with other people. Because I think that that's increasingly an important thing that we do for children, right? And so um, the question will become into the future is what what do other people believe on that, right? Do, do they, they continue to double down on, on hey, the, you know, school is no, primarily you know, about academic achievement and about intellectual growth. That's important, but it can't be the only thing, mm. right? And it can't be 98%, right? I would argue that social-emotional learning needs to grow into 10, 15% of the school day in the future. That's, that's my belief, yeah. right? And if you do that, you're going to give kids a heck of a lot better chance regardless of what they go on to do in, in their life post-high school it being happier and being more resilient because they're more equipped and better able to build relationships in their life. You know, you know, one of the things that I've seen is obviously you started your own school. Um, and I've been seeing, uh, Tim Kennedy started a school too. I believe it's called the Apothecary Academy or something like that. Along those lines, they call their teachers guides. And it's more about, you know, getting people, in their formative years, gathering them and showing them the industrious side of life, right? Yep. Survival skills, all that kind of, you know, Tim Kennedy typical stuff. <laughs> yep, totally. But what you did with your school uh, was kind of along those same lines, right? You want to emphasize some of the foundational principles of this country, obviously, uh, but you're teaching emotional and, and psychological learning too, Totally. Right? Yeah, we're teaching what we call skill, service, character, leadership. Mm. Uh, that gets one whole day of the week for us at Father Capadano High. Um, so those who know his story, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient killed in the Quezon Valley of Vietnam, September 4th, 1967. Um, you know, he was a Navy, Navy chaplain serving in, in support of the Marine Corps. Just absolutely incredible story. Um, lived a life of just pure courage and no doubt about it. Like we, we dedicate one fifth of the, of the school week to that skill, you know, so we serve uh, and we, we build character. Um, our kids clean the building. Uh, they, um, they're responsible for little things like that, for planning things and executing. Like there's leadership opportunities that are given to them. Um, right. And so there's a lot that we're doing that's outside the traditional model with about 20% of the school week. And, mm. you know, and so that's the question. It's not saying that you necessarily need to like, you know, get rid of the focus on, on learning and academics. It's simply saying, there needs to be a balance right. right? in my assessment. And that balance means, again, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the given school week, in my opinion, needs to really be focusing on service to others, service learning, character development, leadership development, giving kids chances to lead and not just to remember information, put it back you know, on a test, write <laughs> essays and do all that. That's important, but it can't be the only thing. And, and that's a big part of our model at the school. And I think the fundamental way that education is fixed nowadays is, is just fundamentally flawed, to be honest. I mean, in, in what I've seen, I got my master's degree, graduated at a very high rate. I was in all the honors courses and, you know, in, in programs and all that throughout my master's degree. But I, I learned within that time, and some of my friends will sometimes make fun of people that get their master's degrees right in front of me because they know that I got my master's. Yeah. I, I would not have the veterans project if it weren't for my master's. Yep. But at the same time, I can find that within this work, it's fundamental. The learning is actually almost all experiential. Yep. And so for the experience of it, 
I mean, I had met guys in their digital media programs and their bachelor's degrees that didn't pick up a camera until their third or fourth year. Mm-hmm. That's disgusting. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is gross. Like, you're paying hundred, dollars $150,000 for an education, and then you're not picking up the main tool yep. that you're going to use in your career until the third or fourth year. So I, I think that this has been highlighted by people like you, uh, by people like Tim, people who see there's a real fundamental flaw in the way that education is done. Yes, you have to learn, but it's almost all based on testing nowadays. Yep. It's like, how high can you score? Totally. And yeah. then you get out in the workplace and you're like, hey, no um, one cares. nobody cares. Right. Yeah. No, that's it. I mean, the fundamental disconnect between, and it's not just that, but you also disengage a lot of kids, right? There's a lot of kids that don't do well at testing. Lots of reasons, right? It could be dyslexia. You know, it's just minor dyslexia can cause a ton of frustration. Kids might not come forward and and even admit it, Um, you know, or just learning differences and kids struggle for various reasons. And, uh, and even kids, you know, who don't have those challenges, they still absolutely uh, can struggle, right? And not like school and be like, this is, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to, I'm going to do the bare minimum I need to get through here. And so again, you're, the idea of making learning as experiential as possible is really important. It's hard. Like I get it, you know, um, especially at scale. If you're talking to high school with 2,200 kids, how do you make learning experiential? That's very difficult. Um, but I think it's a really important question to be asking ourselves is how are we empowering our students, especially at the high school level, college level, to, to grow in their knowledge, not just through theory, but also through practice. Like what are they doing to bring it to life and to do it in a way that allows them to grow and allows them to fail and fail forward. And again, challenging to do, total acknowledging that, but it's very important. Uh, And I think that more and more people are having this conversation right now across America. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that's one of the coolest things about learning is, you know, with, with all that's out there nowadays in the social media sphere and the internet, I mean, who could have ever imagined the internet, right? Right. I was hearing this discussion the other day where people were talking about they, they imagined like wrist style watches where you could talk like Dick Tracy style. And then they imagined like your atoms being rearranged as you teleported across a galaxy. But they could yeah. have never imagined this fear where all this information was available on a NASA sized space rocket computer phone. Yeah crazy all, all the information that's out there and yet really it's about focusing that information and finding out where the inherent flaws are and what we can do as a society to create a better culture for our kids growing up yeah i don't have kids but i see it all the time with my friends yeah and like them trying to focus their energy on things so you know having their kid you know stack logs in the backyard or something yeah. just to create hard scenarios because there aren't enough hard scenarios that they've met out in society because totally. society is all about making things easier, Easy. more comfortable. No, yeah. yes, more more comfortable. Well, with Grace and Glory Farms, yeah. yep, <laughs> you've you've got you've got a lot of these adverse circumstances because of the nature of farming and totally. stuff. You're probably watching your kids grow a lot through that, right? Yeah, I, sh- I got to pull it out and read it to you because my wife sent it to me today, and and I'll uh, yeah. If I don't hear. read it, I would botch it to you, but it's it's very uh, speaks to the core of what you just said. Um, you know, it's about because, you know, today again, George Washington's birthday. Yeah, you know, of course. It, uh, it is certainly no coincidence that such a large number of our finest statesmen were born on farms. Important virtues are nurtured on the farm, including a graphic understanding of the relationship between working and eating. Right. Like this idea of like, wow. You know, Can you, you send that to me? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Please. Yeah. The idea of, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, 
you eat what you kill. That whole mindset of like, that's the way the world existed primarily until, you know, whatever, 70, 80 years ago and still does exist in many parts of the world, right? Where that's it. And, and the idea of connecting the idea, because again, we need to drink water and eat food on a daily basis, right? And breathe. Um, and when you think about that, that if you don't really put thought process into the process of understanding where your food comes from, whether it be your vegetables, your fruits, or your meats, your eggs, your dairy, your breads. I mean, there's a lot of things we just consume and we just kind of take it for granted. Like someone told me this story of, yeah, hey, they asked their kid like, oh, where does chicken come from? Oh, it comes from the uh, freezer in the grocery store. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah <laughs> that's, right. that, that's where we buy it. But, uh, you know, and so even out here, like the process of, you know, teaching our kids and, and they're at the age where they're getting there now, but um, you know, of what does it mean to process a chicken, right? Like that was something I never in a million years thought I would have found myself doing, but you, know, you, you raise meat chickens and then you like, you got to kill them. Right. And then, and then, you know, the way that's the way it just worked all the time. You know, um, if you wanted chicken 50, 60 years ago, that's how you get it. There wasn't chicken at stores to go buy. Right. So if you wanted that, that good tasting meat, then you had to raise the chicken and, and then you had to process it. And then that means plucking the feathers and then doing the evisceration and then cooking it. Like, so my point in saying that is just that like there's real connection, not just the adversity that comes with the work that has to be done every day, but there's a real connection between understanding one of those fundamental things in life, eating, like all the work that goes into it. And I think that fundamentally alters my kid's perspective on, on something as fundamental as how they get their nutrition, mm, right? Yeah. And and again, it just does come back to your point about the adversity. You know, when if there's a you know, the water, if there's a big rain, we got to deal with where the water goes. There's just a lot of things that you don't think about because, you know, in most parts of the country, like the water has been arranged to go and funnels into sewers and you don't worry about it. Yeah. Here, that's not the case, right? So there's a lot more learning that takes place on land and it's been humbling for me, let alone for like the rest of our family. So mm -hmm. you're exactly right. I think in a society that's so much about speed and efficiency and making things easier, uh, we've really taken away some of the main growth points that made this nation great, right? Yep. Like a lot of the adversities and the hard things. I'm not saying, you know, take us back to the Ice Age or right. something, you know, right. but or the, the, the Iron Age or, you know, where people were dying of everything. Right. Um, but I'm saying like some of those placeholders in our society were very real tangible things that we can take and, and iron out in our society that make us better, I believe. Mm -hmm. 100%. And you see it every day probably out here. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, uh, I, I'm guilty as charged as being the guy who likes to get people excited to what I'm excited about. So 10 years ago, this was ultra marathon running. I was like, oh, man, I love, I was running ultra marathons like crazy. And like, that was my big thing. Um, you know, and then it was Team Red, White, and Blue. And then it was the Positivity Project. And, and now it's farming. You know, I, you know, was somebody who never gave any thought to it. My mom had a, a garden growing up that was probably eight feet by 15 feet, right? And it was in the shade and it was awful. Like it didn't hardly <laughs> grow. I, now she's doing, she's got a pretty good garden now that she's older and she know, oh, you got to have more sunlight, more this and that. But like, um, and like, so I didn't have any real appreciation for this stuff growing up. Uh, and, and so I have become a big believer in, there's a great book out there written in like 1940 or something like that called five acres and in independence. Mm. And it talks about just that, right? Like what, all that you can do, if you get five acres, if you move to a place where you can get some land and you don't need a ton, you don't need 30 or 50 or a hundred acres. Can you just get three, four five acres? Um, you, you can give yourself that adversity you can engineer in the daily grind, so to mm. speak of 
chickens and I got a, a vegetable garden, right? And some, maybe some fruit trees that you grow and you can start to take some of that stuff in house and it's incredible, right? Not only do you see the fruits and the rewards of your labor, but it's healthier. And if you've got kids, they're learning in the process about how things work. And oh, by the way, when they don't work, they learn a lot about that. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot you can do on just three to five acres that can really serve as a great, uh, you know, allegorical, symbolic for life, right? The adversities and the ups and downs of life, because you're exactly right. You know, be very wary of the path of least resistance and be very wary of things that are comfortable, right? Mm. Uh, comfort. There's a great sign out there. I remember driving past the West Point all the time. You know, comfort is the enemy of achievement. Mm. Right? You know, getting comfortable is feels good in the moment, but it is it is an obstacle. It yeah. is an obstacle to building your best self and especially to developing the best in other people. Mm, that's powerful. Where do you see the where do you see this farm lifestyle going? You know, what what are you what are you looking for in this? Do you want to have a lot of cattle, horses, all that? Do you want to, you know, bring in programs here to the farm? I've seen you yeah. doing a little bit of that, bringing in some TMRWB elements. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's that about? Yeah, yes, yeah. so we've had you know, some high school students coming out here and putting them through some you know, military style training, but a lot of it focused on leadership. But everything from hey, here's an axe, there's a tree right? Uh, there's the back of the property. Your job is as fast as you can to knock that tree down and move it to the back of the property. Well, what people don't realize until they chop down a tree is how heavy it is because there's all that water in a tree. And so even a tree that looks like it's, you know, eight inches in diameter, oh, this can't be very heavy until you knock it down. It's 30 feet tall, eight inches in diameter, and it weighs like 800, 900 pounds, right? And you're not getting it there without some serious teamwork or splitting it up and taking it in multiple shifts. So we do some basic sort of fundamental problem solving teamwork drills out here with high school students uh, last summer and doing it again this summer. And that's been both a lot of fun and really awesome for the kids to be able to experience those kinds of challenges in terms of long-term. You know, I don't know yet. Uh, that's one of the things I know I do know for sure is if you think you got the next, you know, what you're going to be doing th in three years figured out, you're full of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? definitely. Uh, you know, I know. Oh, yeah. Geez, I'm going to be doing this in three years. And wait a minute. I'm doing something totally opposite of that. Nothing um, more than doing my life work has taught me that. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, you know, on that, I think when I look into the, you know, my you know, sort of, you know, ma magic eight ball or crystal ball and looking, try to look into the future, you know, I don't know. Um, because one, you have to have the land around here and, and so you'd have to buy the land and then do all that. Um, so we are starting, I think next year with getting a couple of beef cattle and a dairy cow mm. and, you know, dairy cows are great. I mean, if, when you figure it out, you get, uh, depending on the cow, three to four gallons of milk a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and then of course you make butter with that and you make heavy cream and whipping cream with that. And you have milk and you can use that milk for all kinds of baking and stuff. And, and then anything that's left over doesn't get consumed by you goes to the pigs, mm -hmm. right? And so now the pigs are happier than can be, right? <laughs> so it's a win-win-win for everybody, you know, but, you know, it comes with additional stress. And again, the daily grind, you can't not milk the cow, yeah. right, for one day. So if you happen to not be here, you have to have a plan to have someone who will be here to be able to do that. So everything you add on, whether it be the goats or, you know, the Great Pyrenees dogs or, you know, the pigs or the chickens, I mean, everything comes with daily responsibility. And, you know, you know, I've been guilty again as charged for taking on more, you know, more than I can biting off more than I can chew, mm -hmm. um, in the first 18 months, especially with the, the turkeys and the, and the meat chickens. But 
learned a whole lot there and and now we'll be better for it. So sometimes like you just got to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and just get after it and you learn on the, and as long as you, you know, you don't, the animal doesn't die on your watch, mm-hmm. you know, then you learn as you go. But I could see in the future, definitely doing more of this, you know, and, and having, you know, 40, 50 cattle, right. And, and getting more into that. That's mm-hmm. what this property used to be. It used to be a cattle farm. Oh, okay. Um, and the soil is so rich because of it, but you know, Bottom line is I don't know yet. It's definitely a decision that my wife probably will have more say on than me. But <laughs> uh, but I, I do love the prospects of doing that just because of, once again, the the adversity that comes into your life on a daily basis because of it. Yeah, that's powerful. Well, Mike, I know that you've got a call to get to here in a bit. Uh, but I, I, this was important for me to come out here and sit down with you cause it'd been a couple, you know, about a year and a half since we've done your project. Yep. Um, and I just appreciate so much what you're doing for the community and as a movement, you know, because that idea of what we're doing with the project is a movement to That's me. Right. It's not just one thing. It's not just art. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a change, you know, it's a cultural change. And right. I believe that's what you're inspiring with team RWB. So I appreciate you coming on. There's so much more we could tackle, but this has been a good. Yeah, sit down. I mean, and and I love the talks. I talk all you know all night. I could be here <laughs> till you know midnight, but uh, but yeah, I definitely appreciate it. And, and what you guys are doing with the veterans product is incredible. You know, it's been great learning about it. You know, several years ago and following it and seeing the journey. It's yeah, I don't follow a whole lot of folks on Instagram just because I keep my you know my my footprint really small. But yeah, um, you know, I just love seeing the places you go and the perspectives that you bring to the table as as an artist and. It's really cool to see. So you well, know, keep up, you. keep up the great work, and and I'm sure that our paths will be crossing here before too long. Uh, I'm sure. So. I'm sure. Uh, do you want to tell people where to go if they want to kind of you know see some of this various yeah absolutely. these various things you've been talking about? Yes, yeah, so I'm sure. And some of the social you'll you'll tag. Yep. You know, I mean, some of it, but you know, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, Instagram and Twitter, both at Irwin R W B. So E R W I N R W B. Um, yeah, and, and those are the best places to kind of just check in and, and track with some of the things going on on the day-to-day perspective, including the Gratitude 365 Challenge mm-hmm. I got going on right now and some of the life on the farm. And, and I try to blend it all together and make it an authentic experience. Uh, you know, overview, right, of my life and my perspectives. Yeah, we certainly appreciate that. Well, thanks again, Mike, for coming on. We appreciate you. Uh, for all those of you listening out there, make sure you check out Mike and Team RWB, Positivity Project, Grace and Glory Farms, about 10 million. That's right. <laughs> Mike is a yeah. high-velocity kind of guy, and uh, we appreciate him a lot, his service. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Mike. And for those of you listening out there, don't forget our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.